Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday night. Late already, I have a lot to do tomorrow, so I think I'll put this out now. Whose yard site is this week? A whole bunch of different people, but I think the most interesting or the one I want to speak about is probably somebody never heard of. The big rabbi long ago, a very interesting and controversial person, uh, Yaakov Sasportas in uh, the 1600s. Uh, listen to this. Sasportas, uh, that's a funny name, isn't it? Uh, it's a Portuguese name, a Spanish, actually a Spanish name. Nobody knows what that means. I see, whenever you have strange Hebrew names or family names, everybody has all theories where it came from, but nobody knows. Here we're dealing with the world of the Sephardim, which I've touched on from time to time in these talks. And it's the Sephardim in the 17th century, which I've again touched on. And that means that the Jews are kicked out in 1492, and then the Portuguese Jews are kicked out a little bit later, or they they weren't kicked out, they were forcibly converted. But there's a whole Sephardi world that develops after 1492. Remember, until then, the Sephardim were in Spain. And then they're not. And the whole events of the world go crazy, not only because of the Jews after 1492. Our hero today, Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas, is a Sephardi guy who lives in the 1600s, like 1610 to 1700, something like, lived all through the 1600s. So that's about 100 years after the Jews kicked out of Spain. And he is therefore um, one of these Spanish Jews who was the good Spanish Jews. They left in 1492, you understand? They didn't stay behind and become Moranos and that kind of stuff. They ran away in 1492. They gave everything up for Yiddishkeit. He's a great-great-great-great-grandson, something like the other Ramban, say a big yichas. And he's born in Algeria. If you look at the map, there are two countries near Spain, across the Mediterranean, across the way. Directly opposite is Morocco, and then over to the side is Algeria. The Spanish Jews started moving to Algeria, like in 1391, when they had the first big set of pogroms in Spain. And more came in 1492. Most of us don't know anything about Algerian Jewry. Why would you? Because none of them came to America, not that I know of. Uh, they were Frenchified. The French took them over in the 1800s. And that's what they were under France until the 1950s and 60s, when the Algerians made a revolt and kicked the French out. And then all the Jews who knew it's good for them got the heck out of there. And they all went to France. Right? They went to France. The reason's simple. They spoke French, and they got free uh, education, free housing, and junk like that from the French government. So, you and I don't ordinarily meet Algerian Jews. We meet Moroccan Jews, but not Algerian Jews, generally speaking. But it's a whole long symbolization of their own. It's a certain type of Sephardi. And if you go back to the 1600s, they had their kilot and all that sort of thing. Algeria, I can't, it's too long to explain. It's got a lot of mountains, different areas. And there were places in which there were very Hushabah Sephardi communities. 
you never heard of. Everybody's heard of the city of Algiers, I know that. But who knows about Oran? You know, the Yaakov Salzburg was born in Oran, which was a big port city. It's a famous battle there in World War II. Uh, or he became uh, Rabbi Clemson. Who's ever heard of Clemson? These are Chashua Kehillahs once upon a time. Anyway, with the Sephardim, it's like this. Not everybody's into learning. Most of them are not. But the ones that are, are. A small elite. They became the Rabbanim, the Dayanim, and uh, they knew their stuff. And so you show me somebody with a robe, especially long ago from a place like Algeria, it's a big Talmud Chacham. And that's who this person was, Rabbi Yaakov Sasporta. So the family way back when was in Spain and Portugal and things like that, but they been in uh, Algeria for a long time. He becomes a Rav at a very young age in uh, in Algeria. But this is very common in the Sephardi world, Ashkenaz too. As soon as you have a Din he's a big Talmud Chacham. He was in his 20s. And as soon as you have a Din Torah between two rich guys, either way, the rabbi's up the creek, because whoever you're posking against will go and get you. In those countries, it's the easiest thing in the world. Just tell the Goyim, on the rabbi, you know, say he's rich, or say he cursed Islam, or something like that. Doesn't take that much. And so, uh, he starts off being a rav in a community in Algeria. He moves to Morocco. There he poskins the wrong way. And next thing you know, he gets arrested middle of the night by the king. This is Alger- this is Morocco, baby. You know, first they arrest you, then they torture you, and then they have the trial, you know. And uh, he's a young guy, and he's going to be beaten up. And he writes in his chalice and shoes, he says, because I wouldn't play ball, you know, if I would have favored the richer guy, this one that happened to me. But he was an honest dying, you know, in the Din Torah. And he ran wrong, across the wrong kind of Moroccan Jew, as they'd say. And the result is, he was in bad shape. I don't know how he escaped out of that jail. But he and his wife then ran away for where, wherever he went in Morocco, in one of these towns, to Saleh. Saleh is today like a suburb of the capital city, Rabat. Uh, Morocco is on the Atlantic Ocean. Do you notice that? Take a look at the map. It's opposite Spain. It's facing the Atlantic Ocean. And long ago, Morocco is full of all kinds of communities. I mean, in the 1600s, the Arabs, they're all fighting each other. There was this little malucha and that little malucha. There was a guy who was trying to be the emperor of the whole Morocco all the time. Sultan. And now listen closely, I'm going to tell you. One of the places that got settled was by Spanish Gaim meaning the Arabs, the Moors, the Muslims, invaded Spain and took it over in the 700s, a long time ago. But then the Christians rallied and fought a war for 800 years. It's a long time, called the Reconquista, in which little by little they reconquered all of Spain from the Moors, from the Muslims. So by 1492, the Christians had physically reconquered every inch of Spain. But there still were a lot of Muslims living in Spain, and Jews. Now you know and I know what they did. They said the Jews out. That's 1492. But after that you still had a lot of people who were Muslims living all over Spain, especially southern Spain. The Spanish were very uncomfortable. It shouldn't be a fifth column. If they have a war with a Muslim country, which they had all the time, the local people shouldn't join the, the enemy. So what the Spanish did is they had their own 1492 if you follow in the 1500s and in the early 1600s, they started little by little to kick out all the Muslims and force the locals, just like they did to the Jews, to convert to, convert to Christianity or leave. And it was a terrible time for the Muslims and all the rest of it. And it happened. 
So lots of these Muslims, what they did was they ran away to Morocco across the water, and the Spanish followed them. Many people don't know this. Spain was an imperial power, and the Spanish had a plan in the 1415 and 1600s, even later, to like conquer whole North Africa and then Spanishize it, you understand, and make it Catholic, all the rest of it. Now, they didn't succeed, but there were bits and pieces that the Spanish had and ruled for a long, long, long time until not that long ago. In fact, there's still, believe it or not, there's two, two places, two cities on the coast of Africa that are still colonies of Spain, even though it's like in, in, they're really in Morocco. One is uh, Ceuta and the other one is Mali. When I was with a group long ago in visiting uh, Spain in that area, the travel agent said, oh, you know, for this and this, we can have you a plane and you can fly across and land in Africa and go to the Spanish colony and there's a Jewish community there, and all, which is true. See, these little places nobody ever heard of, one of the days the Muslims will over on them, it's still held by Spain. So imagine what it was hundreds of years ago. And the reason I'm giving you all this is the following. A whole bunch of these Muslim refugees from Spain went to a place in Morocco, and they said, we're going to get revenge. And they set up like a big fortress, and it became the headquarters of the pirates. They made ships, and they would raid the Spanish. And very successfully, they're called the Sale Rovers, the Corsairs. And this turned into a big business, and for the next hundreds of years, the Muslims became the experts in piracy, and they went all over the world, all over the Atlantic Ocean. You're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you. They raided Connecticut, and they burned down Baltimore. Now, I'm not talking about Baltimore, Maryland. I'm talking about Baltimore and Ireland. It's all in the 1600s. Thousands of, of white Europeans were captured on these ships and these raids and on these cities and became slaves for the rest of their lives in Muslim land. It's a whole long story. You can go and Google it, read up on it on the Barbary pirates, as they call them. The USA, when it became a country, had a first war against the Barbary pirates. It was such a problem because they would capture ships, you know, and take the booty and uh, take the people off as slaves that the U.S. Mm -hmm. government at that time, this is uh, George Washington and, uh, and, and Thomas Jefferson, they had to create an elite force, a counterterrorism force, to fight the uh, Arab pirates. The name of that force was... Um, the United States Marine Corps. Now, you've heard of them. So, in all this world, the Jews moved in. So, these people in Saleh, this place, this the fortress, became a big, bustling city. There's a lot of business to be done because the pirates always bring in goods. And Jews moved over there. The Muslims were used to the Spanish Jews. They all speak Spanish, they all speak Arabic, and junk like that. So, it was a big hush of a community. I know it sounds funny. There was an important from community in the middle of the pirate headquarters, for hundreds of years. I'll give you an example. The Or HaChayim was the rabbi there in the 1700s. had a big yeshiva. So down the block, they're shechting people and selling slaves, white slaves. And a block away is the yeshiva. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's that funny world. And Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas, when he escaped from the jail, he ran away to this place called Sali because it's like its own area. It's not under the Moroccans. And the king of Morocco can't get you over there. They ruled themselves like a pirate republic. I kid you not. A pirate republic. There's a lot to talk about. I'm not going to. And uh, he was a rov in, in the Cahillo with the pirates. So far, so good. Mm -hmm. Now what happens? Uh, he realizes this is not a safe area. And so he moves to another part of the Sephardi universe. What do I mean when I say the Sephardi universe? It's the 1600s. Little by little, the Sephardi Jews are out of Spain and Portugal, so they're setting up communities here, there, and there, 
to live hopefully in places where they won't be persecuted and they'll engage in business. These would be the Muranos, the non-Muran, mostly the Muranos. And so he moved to Amsterdam. Amsterdam in the 1650s when he went there, he was like 40 years old. Uh, when he came there, this is, Amsterdam was unusual. The Dutch had just started their republic. Uh, skipping over all the details, they were by this time pretty liberal to the Jews. You could be Jewish and practice the Jewish religion. It's not a Muslim country where they arrest you in the middle of the night for who knows what. It's a law and order country. Uh, you can do uh, business. And the Dutch Republic at that time had a golden age of trade. And so the Jews were part of that. They were dealing with Brazil and America and uh, East Indies and China and all over the place. And so you could do business there. Now, again, there's a lot of ups and downs because of the wars, but I'm, I'm going to skip all over that for you. And so Amsterdam, the head of the, the main place in the Netherlands, became like the most important Sephardic Jewish community, although of an unusual variety, because every single Jew in Amsterdam was a Moran, was born Catholic and escaped from Spain or Portugal. I mean, even the Rabbonim. So um, when he moves there, uh, they say like this, wow, here's a guy who's actually born Jewish. Uh, he's one of these Sephardim Tohrim, that his family never uh, was in Spain. There were Moranos back there. They, they left in good time. They were very from. He was obviously an intelligent guy because he wouldn't have been a rough back in Morocco and in Spain to be off based in head of a Cahill, head of a based in. He obviously had a certain dignity, the way he carried himself, a sophistication. And being Sephardic of the type I'm talking about, you knew 10 languages. You knew Arabic of various dialects. You knew Hebrew. You knew uh, Spanish and Portuguese because they're all over the place. And he could pick up other languages. And the result is that he became one of the Rabbanim, the Chachamim, as they call it, in Amsterdam. There were other rabbis there. but to t And I could tell you the names, but I'm not going to, because the other rabbis were nice guys, but they were B scholars or A-. minus. This guy, Yaakov Sasbertas, was like serious learning, you know, Vad Yosef style. And so he was like A-plus, Talmud Chacham, Shalos and Tubas, all the rest of it. He could wipe the floor with them. And so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, what shall I say, an uneasy truce. The local Chachamim were glad he's there and help, but they didn't want him to walk all over them. And uh, he had a, a cantankerous uh, temper, perhaps. But little by little, he learned the ropes. Here's the point I want to bring out. Um, one of the other rabbis in Amsterdam is Menashe ben Yisrael, famous person. And he says, I'm going to England to negotiate with Oliver Cromwell, who was the Lord Protector at that time. They didn't have a king because uh, they chopped off the head of the mm -hmm. King Charles I. And what he said was, um, I'm going to try to persuade the English government to withdraw the Isser that they issued in 1290 that no Jews can live in England. Because there's not enough room in the world for the Jews like the Spartan to move to. You need more and more areas so people can do business. Uh, there's a whole kingdom called England. The English are building an empire and a navy. And uh, they're having their own colonies. Uh, one can do very good business over there. So how come for 400 years ago, they issued some crazy rule against the Jews? Why should it be there now? And anyway, that was when the 1290 were Catholic. Now they're Protestants. And so Menachem in Israel, who was also very sophisticated. These are Dutch rabbis who uh, were from, of course, but they're very well educated in European uh, languages and culture and knowledge, science and history and Greek and Latin, all that business. And he went over and was negotiating with the English. 
the, the point is, they said to the English government, uh, Cromwell, who was the dictator of England, he said, this will be good for business in England. We're bringing in people who are doing what? We're bringing in people who are going to be merchants. Uh, they're not going to be on welfare. And uh, they will, you know, uh, help uh, increase the economy. Um, the reason I'm telling you this is he needed help. And this Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas, who had been a rov in Morocco and dealt with the pirates and dealt with others, I'm sure he had all kinds of situations, he seemed to have the kind of gravitas. And, you know, not just a Talmud Chacham like this in the Veltorine, but, you know, someone who knew how to handle himself with the Goyim and how to behave at a royal court. And so he said, you come with me. And, uh, you know, I'll speak in English, you'll speak in Spanish. And it worked. Because uh, they went to England several times, they spoke in Parliament, they spoke in London, and they persuaded the British government at that time uh, not exactly to let the Jews in because there was too much opposition from the British uh, merchants, but to agree to a policy like you have in America today, don't ask, don't tell. But come into the country and nobody will say anything. And that's how the Jews got back into England. And when they did, they set up a community, a Sephardi, Western, you know, Spanish, Portuguese community, in London, it's around the late 1650s. Well, meanwhile, the listen to this: the King of Morocco, the Emperor of Morocco, the Sultan, heard that Sasportas, who used to be a rove in Morocco, was now a successful diplomat in London, and he said, "Boy, I made a mistake beating the guy up and throwing him in jail. All the rest of it, what a waste of a good Jew! I could use him for my service." And so he invited him to come back to Morocco. He says, "All is forgiven." And I want to make you a member of the State Department. I want you to go as my ambassador to Spain. You hear this? The Muslim ruler of Morocco told the rabbi, who he formally beat up, he said, I want you to go now to Spain as the Moroccan ambassador to Spain. Because they, the politics were such that the Sultan of Morocco and the King of Spain could possibly have something to, to unite on for certain reasons I won't go into. Uh, so... I'm sure I know what Yaakov Sasportas was thinking. And it's like this. The Jews are kicked out of Spain, and they never were let back in. So ever since then, the Jews are always dreaming, oh, the good old days of Spain. Like you and I mm -hmm. know people from the Holocaust era. They say, oh, and the old country was great. In Poland, Lithuania, Germany, really was junk, but the memory makes it that it was great. And so all the Sephardim, after they kicked out of Spain, were always longing for hundreds and hundreds of years to go back to Spain. I know there's a story out there, Ababa Misa, that they made a cheyram that the Jews should never go back to Spain, but that's a lie. You understand? That's a, that's a legend. Really, 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 they're always dreaming, oh, can we go back to where our ancestors lived and Spain has potentially such a good economy, the guy don't know how to do it right, we could, you know, really rock over there commercially, which, which is true. And now it never happened. You know and I know that until the 20th century, the Spanish never did change their mind and say the Jews can come back to Spain. But they didn't know it at that time. Now, I want to make something very clear. You won't, you won't know. I know about the Inquisition and all the rest of it. There was no power on the part of the Inquisition to arrest or bother any Jewish Jew. It's a common misconception. The only people that the state and the church had laws and power against were people who had converted and now want to be Jewish. Or maybe they're descended from people who converted, and now they want to be Jewish. So, for example, let's say my great-great-grandfather, way back 100, 150 years ago in Spain, converted, became a guy. 
then that's it. I'm stuck. And so the church keeps records. And if me, myself, and I now, 150 years later, want to be Jewish, so that's a capital crime. They can burn you at the stake. The Inquisition torture you and all that kind of business. But suppose I was someone else. Suppose somebody that my great-great-grandfather lived in Spain and happens to be that they never did convert to, to, to Christianity. They're one of those Jews who stayed there until 1492, and then they left. So the church never had power over them. The Inquisition never had power over them. The Inquisition was only for heretics. These are Jewish Jews. Instead, a law was passed, as you and I know, expelling all the Jews from Spain in 1492. It did not say in the law, if anybody comes back, we'll burn them. If anybody comes back, we'll, we'll uh, chop them in half. It simply said, the Jews are not allowed to come back. It didn't give any penalties if they do. So let's say, for argument's sake, a Jew would come to Spain in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, whatever. According to the law, the only thing you can do is kick them out of the country. You understand? They can say you don't, you're against the law for you to be here. You have to leave now. If you don't leave, then we'll punish you and this, that, and the other. But it wasn't like saying, oh, we caught a guy who's an ex-Catholic, and now we can really uh, torture you and burn you and all this other stuff and arrest all your family and friends and, uh, you know, slice them and dice them. That's not what it was. So a person like Rabiako Sasportas was a Jewish Sephardi. He didn't come from any background where, you know, uh, his family ever converted. They never did that. And so, by the laws of Spain, as a Jew, he's not allowed to enter Spain. That's all. But, on the other hand, if he's a Moroccan diplomat, that's a different story. Just like the Spanish, who are not Muslims, send Mm -hmm. Spaniards to Muslim country to be, uh, what do you call it, you know, ambassadors there. So, vice versa. What's the difference if the emperor of Morocco sends a Muslim to be ambassador in Spain? The Moroccan ambassador in Spain? Or a Jew? And so here you have the very funny situation that a guy who's a rov, I mean a chashim, a talmud chacham, a shalos and chubits and mafarshim, he knew how to learn very, very well. And he finds himself a diplomat, hear what I said? The ambassador of the emperor of Morocco, the sultan of Morocco, in Spain at the Spanish court. And he pulled off some treaty for there. But, and so he got to have his dream. I go back to see the old country and see where it was. But I'm sure also, once he was there, he must have got very depressed. There's no Jews, nobody favors openly Jewish, and uh, very dangerous to hang around him. And you see everywhere all the Christian stuff, and everywhere the crosses and the monasteries and all the rest of it. And he said, you know, the dream we had is it turns out to be not true. And so after this, he left and he went to London, because when the Spanish, <coughs> excuse me, when the Sephardic Jews, it's Portuguese Jews in London here, he was so chashab, he knows to get along with the Goyim, it was an ambassador and all the rest of it. So he said, come be a rabbi here, the Chacham, in the Jewish community in London. And he did for a couple of years. This is being the 1660s. So when he was in his 50s, you might say at the peak of his career, because the Sephardi Jews in, 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 in London, who are not so firm, by the way, they say, we need a guy who can represent us well for the guy. And he was the guy, no question about it. Even though he didn't speak English, but he could learn, and he knew how to behave, I guess, say, with a court and all the rest of it. By this time, Oliver Cromwell was gone, he was dead, and the English had restored the monarchy. So, now you had what they call King Charles II, who was king from uh, 1660 to 1685. And Charles II was a playboy if there ever was one. He kind of defines the word playboy. On the other hand, religiously, he was an easygoing fellow, and that's all the Jews care about. You know, you can have all the girlfriends you want in the world, but he wasn't a fanatic in Christianity or anything, actually quite the opposite. And so Charles II 
said like this, I'm not the one who let the Jews back in uh, legally or illegally. I was Cromwell. But to tell you the truth, the Jews don't bother me. As long as they pay their taxes and help out the government and all that kind of junk, you know, live, live and let live, which is pretty good for the 17th century. It's pretty unique, you understand? And uh, therefore, you have the, the Jewish community in London, in what they call the Restoration Period, where things were pretty X-rated across society, it was like a reaction against the Puritans, and you're trying to be a rub there. What I'm trying to say is, it's a little bit like trying to be the head of a firm community in Las Vegas or something. Uh, it wasn't exactly a place that was conducive to a firm lifestyle. And he had his challenges before him, baby, because, let, let me put it this way, you think with a Spanish-Portuguese community, of people who want to be Jewish openly, but sometimes they don't. Now, what do you mean when it's sometimes they don't? The Moranos, they were all screwed up. Back in Spain and Portugal, they lived part of the time like Christians and part of the time secretly like Jewish. So even when they get out and they go to London, you still are used to Christmas trees or stuff like that. You still every once in a while show up in a church just by habit. And you don't do the normal thing, which is to say, I'm switching back to Judaism, so therefore I'm dropping all the Gaisha stuff. It didn't happen that way. So here's the Chacham, the rabbi, who's going to make speech week after week. He gave 50 speeches a year and show like they do in America now, in which he said, you're not allowed to go to church. <laughs> you know, can't, can't have a Easter egg. You can't do it. Now we're back to Judaism. You know, and they say, why not? You see what I'm trying? It's, it's, it's unique challenges for a rabbi. Every community is unique. And to be a rabbi of a Sephardic, Spanish-Portuguese community in Western Europe in the 1600s, Presented all these kind of challenges. Here's another one. Nobody wants to have a bris. Now, I'll tell you why. Why don't you, why don't you want to have a bris? First of all, back in Spain and Portugal, you couldn't get circumcised. Uh, then you'd find that you're Jewish. Okay, now the guy ran away. He lives in London. What's the problem? Well, what if I'm a merchant? Maybe I have to go back to Portugal once in a while to do business. Or maybe I have to go back to Spain to do business and meet relatives there. If they ever find that I'm circumcised, they'll know I'm Jewish, and either I'll get in trouble, or my relatives will get in trouble. So therefore, it's not going to die for me to have a bris. Maybe when I'm old, you know, and retired, all the rest of it, maybe then, and you know and I know, chances are not. And so, what do you do about that? He has to get the Jewish community to say they won't bury anybody if they don't have a bris, and then it's all campaign. So here you are making speeches every Shabbos on the basics of Judaism. Don't have a Christmas tree. You must have a bris. You have to keep Shabbos. What was keeping? What is Shmir Shabbos like to somebody who all of his life was used to working on Saturday? Because they escaped from Portugal and Spain. That's what they were used to. That's, that's the way it went. Sunday was the holy day. Saturday, you better work or else it'll look like you're Jewish back in Spain. And now you come in London and you go cold turkey. Easier said than done. Now, at the official level, the Cahill can make it that the Jews don't go to the stock market and say, this really was true, and things like that. But what they do in the house and what they do in their own, it's very hard to enforce this. So everybody thinks that long ago, everybody was super from all the rest of it. Baloney, they had different sets of issues. By the way, Hashkaf issues, they definitely have, because what did they learn in Spain and Portugal in Gaisha school? How stupid Judaism is. Now they come to London and they escaped, you know, and then they discover Judaism has all kinds of rules they never heard of like fill-in, and, you know, uh, a Seder, and they got to count the Sphira, and, you know, a thousand and one other kosher's rule. What the heck is kosher's? You know, and you can't eat this, you must eat that, and you have milk again, flesh-shake. Can you imagine what a new culture shock it was? And so a lot of these people say, you know what they told me back in Spain and Portugal was true. Judaism is nuts. 
And uh, but now, on the other hand, they re they reinvented themselves. They moved to to London. You see what I'm saying? And so he had his work uh, cut out for him. And every week he's uh, trying to uh, lay the foundation for from community. Try to lay the foundations for Akashras. Try to lay the foundations that they should have the cemetery right. It was this very very interesting era. After a couple of years, you know, he had it up to here, and you know it was a little too much even for him. And so he went back. To uh, oh no no I remember what it was, he was in he talked in London but guess what happened in the middle of the sixteen sixties in London, you had the Great Fire. If you know anything about your history, when London Bridge everything burned down, the whole city burned down, and then that's like Forever Amber, the famous novel, and you also had the Great Plague. So when he <laughs> that's right, when he when it started to be the Great Plague. First of all, they weren't paying him that big of a salary, but he had a salary, a decent salary. And then they said, yes, we want you to stay uh, even during the plague. He says, shalom, baby, you know, I don't get paid that much money. And they had the same junk like the measles now. The Sephardic community in London was a real Spanish-Portuguese community. It's what they called the Mahamad. That's the board of directors, and they're like the dictators. You know, they give the rules, and everybody in the community, the, the local community has to follow or else. That's the only way they knew how to run a Kahilo. Top down, with the with the board of directors being the dictators. And that way they can control that, you know, nobody gets in trouble with the Goyim, and uh, does, nobody makes a Kahilo Hashem. Believe me, if he had such a thing now, nobody would be allowed to call Rush Limbaugh right there and say, I'm a from Jew. You know, you gotta make a Kahilo Hashem. That's the first rule they would pay. That's the kind of atmosphere it was at that time. And so, uh, he didn't you know, fit in in that particular way. And make a long story short, as soon as the plague happened, he left there and he ran away to Hamburg. Now, Hamburg is in Germany. So what's that got to do with it? There was a Spanish-Portuguese community in Germany, in Hamburg, in northern Germany. People don't realize there were Sephardic Jews, Western Sephardic Jews, Moranos, in northern Germany. And uh, once again, it was a big community, they got rich people. They do a lot of merchant shipping because, you know, Hamburg is on the uh, facing the Atlantic Ocean. And so uh, it's a big harbor. And uh, sees the rub over there. Well, what happens to him when he's over there? Shop that's <laughs> It's 1666. And the whole Jewish world here is there's some guy who's going to be Mashiach tomorrow. And he's in Israel. And it's happening. And if you know anything about Shop Dites I did a series on it. You can listen to the other podcast. If you, Shop Dites basically said like this. I'm going to appear as the Mashiach within months. Well, people say like this. Usually, when you talk about Mashiach, say it'll happen in 50 years. Because you know, you can always say this will happen in 50, 60 years. Nobody, none of us will be around. If the guy says it's going to be happening you know, within months, he couldn't be lying. It must be true, because pretty soon we're going to know whether you're telling the truth or not. So that because he gave such a short time fuse, everybody was convinced that this is the real thing. Nobody would put out a, a story like this. It wasn't true. I'm simplifying, but this is the basic story. And so all the Spanish Jews, oh my goodness, they were totally convinced that the Mashiach time is here and it swept the whole community. Anybody who didn't go along was like living in 70, 770 and going against La Baba's River. It's just impossible. And the result was that in Amsterdam and in London and in Hamburg, and other communities, and the Ashkenaz too, the whole Jewish world went crazy, and everybody really felt the Mashiach site is here. Now, the Rabbanim had a hard time. 
Because they didn't know. How do you know? If somebody says Mashiach, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You say there's no proof. All the Balabatim are into it. And here's a funny part. The rabbi, suppose I told you the Mashiach coming in a week. And let's say you really believed it. One of the things you might wish to do is stop doing Averis. Get your act together. Start doing more mitzvahs. Uh, especially Ben Al-Havero, you know, that counts a lot. People started being nice to each other in shul. Stop cheating each other. Stop acting like Jews. You know, the, ra- the local rabbi says like this, I'm a Mashiach or not, but I like what I see on my Balavatim. The community is becoming more from People give me more tzedakah. The students are nicer to the teachers. The teachers are nicer to the students. It just had a good effect. And so the result is the whole Jewish people went nuts. And you could count on your hand the number of uh, people and Rabbanim and all that who said that this is not true. Because when the bubble expanded in the summer of 1666, people were absolutely convinced that this guy, Shabtai Tzvi, is going to go to the Sultan of Turkey, and the Sultan of Turkey is going to say, how do you do? I know who you are. You're Melchim Mashiach. I want to give you the keys to Eretz Yisrael. And Gesundheit, go and bring all the Jews from Maccabi, Sinitzchayam, Yisrael, and go rebuild the base of Migdash, and we Muslims will get out of the way, and, and you'll have the Messianic era. They were just absolutely convinced it was true. I could go story and story, but the hour's late anyway. And so, the only guy that I know of, that people know of, who was 100% against it, and tried to stand against the, uh, the tide of popular Mishigas, was Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas. In fact, he wrote a whole book called Tzitzit's Nobel Suites, which become a classic. The historians love it because he wrote letters back and forth to all the different Ashkenaz and Sephardi, especially Sephardi communities, who said, don't fall for this. The guy can't be Mishael. For this reason, that reason, don't go nuts. It's going to blow up in your face. It got so frenzied that for a while, he himself started believing it. He said, you know, listen, if I was, he writes in his diary, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I meant well. Uh, but I, I, it's hard to believe. But if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. You know, Hashem should forgive me. But of course, within a short time, the whole shop that he was exposed as a phony, and he could say, "I was, I told you so. I told you so." Now you want to know something? What happens when everybody's wrong and one guy says, "I told you so"? They don't like the guy. Why don't they like the guy? It's embarrassing. You tell me, how did the Jewish people all over the world feel when Shabbat Tzvi was exposed to be a phony? You tell me what happened. The answer is the Jews felt like the biggest idiots in the world, especially by the Christians, because the Christians could say like this, why exactly don't you believe in Jesus? You think he's not the Messiah because you Jews know who the Messiah was? Yeah, right, look at it. You fell for this idiot called Shabtai 3. It wasn't garnished. And you all fell for hook, line, and sinker. So that proves that you don't know anything about Mashiachism. So we Christians are better than you on that. You got to admit, the guy took a point over there. It's very embarrassing. So what the Jews... Most of them did was, let's just forget about this and move on, and let's not talk about it. And here's this Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas, who's actually publishing things in which he says, I knew it, I told you so, nobody listened to me, now I'm proved I was right. See, he didn't have the most diplomatic way of approaching the subject, but he became the guy that all the historians love, especially in Amfram, because he kept all the documents, and he's the one who told the whole story about Shabtai Tzvi, and he was the one who you see all the way through was trying to be rational about it when the others were not rational. And as a result, he became a very important historic figure. Uh, the non-from historians particularly love his stuff. And uh, he, wrote, like I say, he wrote this whole big uh, book, which is an old collection of his correspondence on the subject in 1666. And that book didn't get out so much. It was only came out in the 20th century, believe it or not. 
But Rabbi Yaakov Emden, of course, who was a super anti-Shabtai Shvi, published a kisser of it. That's a lot of people have seen that. Uh, now, uh, as a result of what I just said, because he was right, he wasn't popular. And people said, can't you get out of here? You're, 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 you're too much of an embarrassment because you were right and we were wrong. And so, ironically, this led to him leaving Hamburg and ending up, I think in the end, he went to Livorno, which in Italy, which was the richest Sephardic community. So there he landed in a good situation because Livorno is a port city in Italy. I've mentioned before, in Livorno, for various reasons, the community was all Spanish-Portuguese Jews. Ashkenazi Jews are not allowed to live there. You, if you're a Meshach, you come for a day or two and then you're out. The community was very wealthy. These, they, they, did, they were merchants all over the Mediterranean. And they were from, or relatively from. Let's put it this way. You had a strong element over there of people who were genuinely from and were well off. And so they could make him a Rosh Hashiva, and that's where he spent the rest of his life. That's where he publishes Shalos and Shuvas and things of that nature. And so you could say the last 20 years of his life, he had it, I won't say easy, but, you know, uh last 30 years of his life, actually, uh, you know, better. Because, <coughs> excuse me, he was in a community that could appreciate him. They had a Hokaras HaTorah, they understood what a Tamachacham is, and he was a good speaker. And like I said before, he knew how to help the community represent himself in front of the government. I forgot this story, I have to tell you this. In London... When he was there, it was like I said before, it was King Charles II. The status of the Jews wasn't clear, and the British government, the Parliament, passed a law called the Conventicle Law. The British historians know this, in which it was aimed against the certain Protestants that the Church of England didn't like. And basically, what it says is, you can't have a, a house of worship with more than five people. The Jews need ten, and they want more. And they say, "Oh, vey, this is going to hurt the Jewish religion. Can't have a show." And so. What do you do? So, yeah, by the way, certain English politicians, it's like New York and Baltimore, they said, if you pay me enough money, I can, you know, get, get it done to you uh, through bribery. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they were lying. They would just use it to extort more money. This how it was in New York, Chicago, London, everywhere. But the Jewish community said like this, we'll go to the king, Rabiaka Sasportes. You were by the king of Morocco, by the king of Spain, by also by Albert Cromwell. You tell us what to do. He organized a delegation. They met with the king of Charles II. You hear this? And, king, and they said what the problem is. And King Charles II is like this. I hear what you're saying. The law is not intended against you. It's intended against the other Protestants. I myself will make myself your protector. As long as you keep your nose clean and, and obey the laws and don't cause any trouble to England, nobody's going to bother you. If anybody does, send them to me. And, you know, they thought he's going to take money. He didn't take any money. And so they were not used to it. He wrote back in his uh, shoes and says, I met a king, I can't believe. You know, he was willing to help the Jews and he didn't, didn't want any money for it. So, uh, you know, he had experience, like I say, with governments. As a result, in the last decades of his life, when he was in Italy, he was able to always be not only a Rosh Hashiva, but the type of guy today you would say like this, send him to talk to Trump, send him to talk to Obama, because he's not only a posseg, but he's also a person who understands how to deal with the outside world. So he didn't have a formal secular education, but the, uh, he had, in effect, a formal secular education, which is not so common among Algerian and Moroccan rabbis. Anyway, I've spoken long enough, more than I usually do, and this is a very, very unusual figure, and if uh, you read about him or look him up, you'll find a story that would make a, some movie, baby, that would make some movie, but at the most you're going to get out of it now is just one podcast. 
Have a good evening. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.